You're listening to Fence Posts, Foundations for the Christian Life. Fence Posts is a teaching ministry of Pastor Mike Woodruff of Christ Church Lake Forest. God is good. Two stories have recently caught the attention of the American public. In one, a prominent financial advisor has been caught bilking tens of billions of dollars from investors through a long-running Ponzi scheme. In the other, the pilot of a passenger jet safely landed his crippled airliner in the Hudson River, saving the lives of every person on board. The investment advisor destroyed lives. The pilot saved them. We recognize the first is evil and the second is good. Do you know why? And if so, how do you know why? How is it that we intuitively know right from wrong? The answer is, human beings have a sense of good and evil because God has written his laws on our heart and because he has communicated certain attributes to us. That is, he has shared some of his nature with us. We are special. We're not merely rocks or trees. We're not wind or waves. We're not even simply animals. We are the ones he made in his image. And though that image was broken as a result of our rebellion and fall, and sin now courses through our veins, we retain a hint of a number of the attributes of God. Let me be clear. We are not God. We're not even God-like. He is infinite, perfect, and holy in all of his being and actions. We are finite, imperfect, and fickle. But we share aspects of his nature. These are called his communicable attributes. In the first study, we looked at our need for a relationship with God. In the second, we explored his triune nature. Most recently, we focused on the ways in which God is utterly unique, that is, his incommunicable attributes. In the next chapter, God is great, we will focus on his holiness, omniscience, and omnipotence. In this study, we explore his goodness, love, and faithfulness. The Goodness of God. Psalm 106 reads, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Those who enjoy a great relationship with their dad often think their heavenly father has some of the same qualities their earthly father does. But in fact, a loving and wise earthly father only begins to have some of the wonderful qualities our heavenly father possesses. God is infinitely good. He is not only the greatest of all beings, He is the best. Scripture makes this point repeatedly. Christ himself stated that God is the only one who is truly good. And the psalmist declared, For the Lord is good and his actions, his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. God is good. But what exactly does this mean? What is the goodness of God? Generally speaking, we think of someone as good when they are virtuous, generous, or exceptionally proficient. That is, a good person doesn't lie or steal, they're kind to others, or they excel in a particular way. For example, Tiger Woods is a good golfer. God certainly qualifies on all of these accounts, but the biblical claim of his goodness goes beyond this definition. According to the Bible, God's goodness means he is the final standard of good, And all that God is and does is worthy of approval. As you can tell, this definition carries things to an entirely different level. For starters, it means that God sets the standard. God is not good because he meets some independent measurement or gains the approval of some outside group. 
God is both the measurement and the judge. Other things are good to the extent they reflect his nature and meet with his approval. There is no one or no thing higher than God. Consequently, he alone is qualified to establish what is good. Secondly, it means that all that he does is good. All of God's actions, thoughts, decisions, and works are perfectly and infinitely good. He is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Thirdly, it means that he is constantly good. Good teachers are occasionally frustrated with their students. Good parents lose their patience. Good golfers miss three-foot putts. Despite our best efforts, we lose our temper or struggle with selfishness, greed, or lust. God never does. His goodness is always on display. In fact, we can go one step further and declare, as James does, that God is the source of all good things. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. What flows from God is always good because God is good, and all that is good flows from God, for he is the fountainhead of all good things. What can we learn from God's goodness? This attribute actually takes us in several directions. God wants to bless us. God's goodness means that he wants what is best for us. His heart is wired to bless us. In fact, he wants to give us all the goodness we're capable of receiving. Of course, because of our sin, this is not always what we want, nor is it always what we think is best. But the Bible makes it clear that the goodness, his goodness, overflows in ways that are beneficial to us. We see this first in our salvation. In Titus 3, Paul writes, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It is God's goodness that led him to rescue us, securing an eternity of perfect joy. We also see his blessing extended to us through the instruction he provides. In Psalm 25, 8, we read, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Many people fundamentally misunderstand God's instruction, especially the part we call the moral law. They believe the thou shalt nots are rants of a miserly killjoy. Nothing could be further from reality. Just as a good parent lovingly instructs a child to avoid things that may harm them, God's goodness leads him to inform us of the things that can harm us. He instructs us not to murder, lie, steal, sleep around, or covet, not because he does not want the best for us, but because he does. He wants us to experience the best he has to offer, and he knows that life does not work well for long when we violate his commandments. There is a grand positive behind every one of the negative commandments he issues. It is because of his goodness that he provides us with the instruction that he does. We should be growing in goodness. The second implication of God's goodness is that we should be getting better all the time. Through the grace and guidance of the Holy Spirit, the amount of space goodness occupies in our hearts should be expanding. In Ephesians 3.16, Paul prays for the strengthening of our inner being through the Spirit. Since God is good, this strengthening must include the development of our goodness. We should be pursuing goodness. God has perfectly good purposes and intents for each of our lives and ultimately for all of creation. One of the things we are called to do is to do good. 
This was Paul's specific admonition to the church in Galatia. In his letter to them, he wrote, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. Finally, we should be pursuing God. If we want to be good, and if we want good things to populate our days, we should pursue God, since God is the definition and source of all good, and he himself is the ultimate good that we seek. We must pursue him. The love of God. Romans 8, Paul writes, For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Frederick Lehman wrote, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The final quote is from Tozer, A.W. Tozer. His love is an incomprehensible, vast, bottomless, shoreless sea before which we kneel in joyful silence and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats, confused and abashed. Several years before his death, the prominent Swiss theologian Karl Barth came to the United States to deliver a series of lectures. After one of his talks, a graduate student asked, Dr. Barth, what is the greatest thought that has ever crossed your mind? After thinking for several moments, Barth replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Christianity is not simply a moral philosophy or a set of ethical guidelines. It is a comprehensive worldview based on the bold proclamation, Jesus loves me. Moreover, the claim that Christians celebrate is not simply that God is infinite, perfect, self-existent, holy, glorious, and eternal, for he could be all of these things and still be an abstract force devoid of feelings. What the Bible declares is that God is a personal being who loves that which he made. It is to God's love that we now turn our attention. What exactly is love? Or more to the point, what exactly is God's love? Some people love coffee. Others love the Cubs. The term is used to describe the fierce and all-consuming passion of lovers, the devotion parents have for their children, and someone's preference for mushrooms on their pizza. Clearly, it's a bit extended. What exactly is love? The ancient Greeks avoided some of the confusion we face by employing three different words where we use one. Philia was used to describe the loyalty and virtuous love found between friends and family. It's the root in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and also philanthropy. Surge is the natural affection parents have for their children. It's often translated by our term fondness. Eros describes passion and sensual desire. It's the root of the English term erotic. With the benefit of these three terms, the ancients were able to differentiate between types or aspects of love far better than we are. But, interestingly, 
both those charged with translating the Hebrew Bible into Greek and the writers of the New Testament themselves did not find any of these words strong enough to represent the kind of love God has for us. Instead, they selected a seldom used term and infused it with the meaning they wanted to convey. It's this term, agape, which implies a self-sacrificing, giving love that they used almost exclusively when writing about God's love for us. In his short book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis expands on this point. He begins by making a basic distinction between gift love and need love. The first is what we do to express our love to others. The second represents our desire to receive from others, which can be base, such as it is with lust, or innocent, such as a child yearning for his mother's arms. Lewis then relates gift love to God. Theologians fundamentally agree. They understand God's love to mean that God eternally gives of himself to others. Please reflect on how profoundly different this makes God. Generally speaking, our natural love goes out to the worthy and attractive. It's an object-elicited love. In other words, we love because something is lovable. God's love does not depend on the object. In fact, it is bestowed on the undeserving and unlovable. It's not object-elicited, but subject-generated. He can love the unlovable because his love is not dependent upon anything but his own character. Our love can't wait to get. God's love can't wait to give. In one sense, the entire Bible speaks about God's love, but there are key passages that offer particularly deep insights into his giving nature. One of them is found in the first chapter of John's first letter. There we read, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. There's much to consider here. But perhaps the boldest assertion is that God is love. Not that he is loving or that he loved, though both of these concepts are true, but that God is love. What does this mean? Well, we could start by noting what it does not mean. Saying that God is love does not mean that love is God. Some have argued that if A equals B, then B equals A. But what works in math does not always work in literature. Case in point, we also say love is blind, but no one would suggest that blindness is love. To imply that all love is God would not only be an act of idolatry, it would reduce God down to just one of his attributes. And while this is tempting, after all, if we could reduce God to love, we would never need to fear his holiness, justice, or judgment. This is not what the text means. It also does not mean that God is particularly sentimental. Today, many equate love with butterflies in the stomach, candlelit dinners, and baskets full of puppies. That is, they think of love as a warm emotion. Of course, human love can feel that way, and God's love has a heartfelt component to it. But his love is never fickle. The Bible declares that God's love is steadfast. It is always stable, never swayed. The psalmist declares, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. 
I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. So what does God is love actually mean? It means that his love is so profound that it's hard to overstate. Earlier, I mentioned that the Hebrews occasionally emphasized a point by repeating it. A second way they could highlight something was by employing the literary device used here. By equating one thing with another, by stating that God is love, John is declaring that love is so much a part of his character that to express the depths of his love, we must say God is love. Clearly, God's love is remarkably different from what we so often experience in a broken world. Four things you need to know about God's love. In 1948, a hymn writer suggested that if the oceans were filled with ink, they would run dry before writers were able to adequately express the majesty, glory, and depth of God's love. Clearly, any summary of this attribute will be inadequate, but we have to try. So far, we have established that God's nature is so gloriously loving that the biblical writers had to use a special term to describe it, It seeks to give, not to get. It is subject-generated, not object-elicited. And that he is able to lavish his love on the unlovely. There are still four other things that you must know. First, God loves himself. God loves himself first. That is, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all love each other perfectly. This is expressed in a variety of passages, such as when the Father audibly praises the Son or when the Son obeys the Father. It's further seen in the ministry of the Spirit, who always seeks to elevate the Father and the Son. In fact, if you pay attention as you read the Gospels, you will notice that every single interaction we see between the members of the Godhead reflect their perfect and deferential love for each other. This should not surprise us. After all, God is perfect and His love is perfect. It really makes perfect sense for him to love himself. Nor should this concern us. God's self-love is nothing like human self-love. For starters, his triune nature completely changes the nature of his self-love. Secondly, human narcissism is fatally flawed. We should not be absorbed with ourselves because we're small and broken. God's self-love makes sense. Finally, his love of himself does not lead to any ego inflation. He really is infinitely important. Secondly, God loves us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. A good number of those who write systematic theology books take up their discussion of God's love later in their survey of biblical truth than I am doing. That is because you cannot begin to understand how great God's love is until you begin to appreciate how bad mankind is. We'll be exploring the doctrine of man in Fence Posts 3. For now, let me say that Scripture teaches that since the fall, we exist in a state of total depravity. That is, every area of our life, our mind, spirit, emotions, and body, has been ravaged by sin, leaving us with deeply selfish and dark hearts. And among the many things that result from this is a rebellious attitude towards God. No doubt some of you think I'm overplaying my hand, but you can only feel this way if you're making one of two mistakes. First, you have an inflated view of your own goodness. Some of you are rolling your eyes even now. Yes, yes, I agree that God is good, but surely we're not that bad. At least I'm not that bad. In fact, I think it's quite reasonable that God would love me. I'm quite lovable. 
Or second, you have a naive view of sin and evil. The second mistake is to be blind to how wicked and destructive the dark side is. Many have been suckered by the oldest marketing ploy on record. That is, we believe that good is boring and evil is fun. Just the opposite is true. Evil presents itself as exciting, life-giving, and a bit sexy, but it's small, hollow, and mind-numbingly boring. It is also desperately destructive and dark. It is impossible for me to communicate just how heinous sin is or how much our holy God hates it. Suffice it to say, the Bible describes us as God's enemy. In fact, in the fifth chapter of his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, At just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What this means is that while our Heavenly Father could expect nothing from us but active rebellion and hatred, He sent His Son to secure our rescue. In other words, God loves us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. Pause for a second to consider what this means, for it showcases one of the truly great ironies of all time. Though God is altogether perfect, gracious, holy, and awesome, in other words, though he is perfectly lovable, we do not love him. Meanwhile, even though we are quite unlovable, he does love us. God's love is amazing. God's love can only begin to be captured by the cross. A second reason some theologians put off a discussion of God's love is because it is not until we arrive on the Easter side of the cross that we're able to understand it. That is, the depth of God's love can only be adequately expressed through his willingness to die in our place. This should not shock us. After all, there is no greater love that can be shown than to lay down your life for a friend. And God's love is as great as any love can be. But you may be in for a surprise all the same. Did you know that it's hard to find a discussion of God's love in the New Testament that does not mention Christ's death? Almost all of the New Testament passages that proclaim God's love do so in the context of the cross. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Augustine once called the cross a pulpit from which Christ preached God's love to the world. That pulpit is frequently on display in the New Testament descriptions of his love. The fourth point here is that God's love is inexhaustible. God's love is not simply perfect, it's infinite. In ways the Energizer Bunny can only dream of, God simply keeps on giving. 
Paul celebrates this point in his prayer for the Ephesians. Quote, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. End of quote. A careful reading of this text suggests that Paul wants us to know the unknowable. Now, this should not surprise us. In their efforts to describe God or the life to come, the biblical writers frequently exposed the poverty of human language. In both cases, the subject matter is simply too great for our vocabularies. Paul is a bit more concrete, though no less grand, in his letter to the Romans. There he writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is greater than we can comprehend. It is perfect. The Father's gift of His Son was the greatest gift He could give, for Christ is the best He has to offer, and in offering Christ, He offered Himself. What more could He give? Our loving God has grace for the guilty, mercy for the miserable, and kindness for the helpless. He is good. He is patient. He is generous and compassionate. Indeed, He is not simply loving He is love. What does this mean? As we've already noted, honest efforts to understand God often become overwhelming because of who he is. His nature eclipses our ability to comprehend. But we must not let this fact stop us from moving forward. The study of God in general and the study of his communicable attributes in particular are designed to lead to change. They're not just mind-bending, they're demanding. Even the most superficial exploration of his love should make two things very clear. First, we should love God. As God has loved us supremely, we are to love him. The command to embrace a total and loving commitment to God is seen in ancient Israel's central creed, the Shema, which was repeated daily. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is good news, by the way, because of who he is, the more you learn about him, the easier he is to love. Secondly, we should love one another. We must note that loving God is only possible as we love his people. John, who has already figured prominently in this study, makes this point. Dear friends, let us love one another for the love for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. In fact, when asked to summarize the teaching of the law, Christ said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The faithfulness of God. 1 Corinthians, we read, God is faithful 
by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So far, we've considered two of God's communicable attributes, his goodness and his love. We will now briefly consider a third, his faithfulness. In a world filled with broken promises, defaulting banks, and fractured relationships, God's children can take great joy in knowing that God honors his commitments. The Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. Indeed, though we often willfully or forgetfully break our commitments to God, he will never fail us. As he proclaims through the prophet Isaiah, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Few themes are as celebrated in Scripture as the faithfulness of the Almighty. But what exactly does it mean to say that God is faithful? We've already explored the fact that he is immutable, that is, he does not change. Is God's faithfulness making a completely different point? Some Bible translators have started to use the term loyalty to describe faithfulness. But that does not really help here. In fact, loyalty seems a bit wide of the mark because as admirable as it can be, loyalty can also be an excuse for grave injustice, something our faithful God can never do. Words like trustworthy and reliable are better synonyms. Therefore, I think it's best to think of God's faithfulness this way. God is entirely trustworthy and perfectly reliable. He will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. We may stumble and fall. Out of fear, weakness, or lack of desire, we may prove unfaithful in some way. God never will. He can be counted on to do all that he has promised. Three pictures of faithfulness. First, the covenants. As you may remember from Fence Post 1, the Old Testament revolves around a series of agreements that God made with various human representatives. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. The most significant of these is the one God entered into with Abraham in Genesis 12. There, beginning in verse 1, we read, The Lord has said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. The story that unfolds from Genesis 12 throughout the rest of the Old Testament is the story of Abraham's descendants. And for the most part, it's a story of God's faithfulness and his people's faithlessness. He keeps his promises even as they abandon theirs. Those who read the historical books of the Old Testament cannot help but be struck by this. On the battlefield and in the bedroom, in the temple courts and around the family dinner table, the people of God, those who are supposed to know better, break their vows especially those they make to God. And yet, he never fails to keep his. His timing is seldom what they expect. Indeed, it's almost never what they would choose. But God always, always keeps his promises. This message comes across even more clearly when the prophetic books are added into our consideration. For the prophets spend much of their time documenting the... One book in particular stands out in this regard. It's the first of the 12 minor prophets, the book of Hosea. 
During the period when the northern ten tribes of Israel were flagrantly violating God's law, the Lord instructed Hosea to lavish his love on a prostitute. The passage reads, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. In obedience to God, Hosea married Gomer and remained faithful to her, even as she proved faithless to him. Indeed, even after she left him, he again obeyed the Lord's instruction and pursued her, eventually buying her back from the slavery she had fallen into. God led Hosea to love Gomer despite her rejection and humiliation of him. The Lord did this in order to demonstrate the nature of his divine love, a love freely given and lavishly bestowed on his people. Even though Israel played the harlot, prostituting herself to other gods, the Lord was faithful to his promises. He proved in that setting, as in every other, that he will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. The New Testament Update The message of God's faithfulness is broadcast no less loudly in the New Testament. Not only does the birth of Christ fulfill the commitment God made to Abraham, in other words, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, but Paul and others boldly proclaim the steadfastness and utter reliability of God. He makes this point forcefully in the second letter to Timothy. Here we read, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Those who put their hope in the Lord have found something far more trustworthy than any government or their most loyal friend. God will never break his word. Indeed, he cannot. He is perfectly, infinitely, and gloriously faithful. What does this mean? What are are we supposed to do with this information about God? What are the implications of his faithfulness? I would like to highlight three. First, we must put our faith in him. It's not enough to reflect on God's faithfulness Be encouraged and then simply move on. A more significant response is required. Indeed, faith itself is not simply belief. It is action. Faith is a verb. The Bible does not recognize faith that does not in some way lead to obedience. Secondly, we must be faithful to others. We should be faithful in our relationships, not only with God, but also with one another. Paul lists faithfulness as one of the fruits of the Spirit. Proverbs instructs us to be certain that Quote, love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. End of quote. Whatever else this might mean, it certainly demands that we are honest in our interactions. Finally, to these two, I would add one more. We must hope. Faith in a faithful God means that we are never without the confident assurance that a loving, all-powerful, and good God has pledged himself to the ultimate well-being of all those who call on His Son for salvation. The more you learn about God, and the more completely you place your trust in His care, the easier it is to love, honor, and obey Him. God is good.
If there's any way we can help you on your spiritual journey, please contact us at cclf.org or email us at fenceposts at cclf.org.